Welcome back to another episode of the Pat's Pints Podcast. I'm Pat Woodward, and I'm joined, as always, by my partner, Mark Richards. What's up? Coming to you live from our subterranean Clintonville studio. And this morning, well, right away there, that's a little bit unusual because we're recording in the morning, but we're uh, happy to be joined by Tom Ayers of Ill Manor Brewing. How you doing? I am doing well. Thanks for coming on, Tom. Thanks for having me. We visited you yesterday for your groundbreaking one-year anniversary party. Right, right, yes. We were just looking for a good excuse to do do something. So one year ago, roughly yesterday, we broke ground on our new building. I mean, we've been in it for six months now. And come check it out if you haven't. It's a good space and definitely a lot more room than the old space. A huh? little bit more room, yeah. Maybe you could give us the crash course on... Ill-Mannered Brewing? Sure. Ill-Mannered started in 2015. Uh, there are four of us, myself, uh, Tom, and then Greg, Brian, and Ryan. Four co-owners started it back then, basically brewing after work in a thousand square foot space on a three-barrel brewery with three fermenters to start. And then we've grown it to now where two, soon to be three of us work there full time. Uh, we're in a 3,000 square foot facility with, in addition to our old thousand square foot space and we have a lot more fermenters, a lot more capacity. And a lot more seats for us to come. A little bit more. Yeah, have yes. a beer. We had 15 seats before. We have um, probably over 100 now. You and Greg are full-time at the brewery? That's right. Yep. And, and who's coming on uh, board? Brian will be joining the team in April. Okay. Now, when you first opened, initially, all of you guys kept your day jobs, That's right? That's right, yes. What was that like? Uh, not fun. Uh, 100-hour weeks on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, so... That's that's not a blast. Those those weeks occasionally still do exist, but at least they're all focused on the brewery now. Uh, you know, we would all work our day jobs. We opened the tap room at five, so we would skate out of work early and get to the tap room, and then listen to everybody be mad because we didn't open until five. Right. So, <laughs> so and so, it was like Thursday through Sunday? Uh, Wednesday through Saturday originally. What? Eight months after we opened, Greg and I came on full time, which we added Sunday at that point. Uh, and when we moved in our new place, we added Tuesday as well. So we're open every day, but Monday now. You know, you would come in after work. You would work till 10 o'clock in the tap room. You would come in on Sunday and brew. On Monday night after you worked, Monday and Tuesday nights when we weren't open, you'd come in and you would clean kegs. You would package beer. And then every once in a while, we'd find a way to deliver a keg to some accounts. And, uh, you know, you were pretty much the four of us doing everything we could all the time. And oh, by the way, there's all the things that go along with running the business, like, you know, making sure you pay your taxes and those kind of not so fun things. Those are kind of important things. Yeah. The yeah. most boring portion of brewing, isn't right. it? Yeah. 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 Most people forget about the actual running of the business, but you got to still do that. Yeah. I would say every time I visited, almost always one of you or two of you is behind a bar. Like That's when right. I went there yesterday, Greg and Brian were there. It's just a nice touch. I mean, I'm sure you guys just are strapped for time right. and, and working a lot, but you know, it's your baby, it's your pride and joy. And it is cool to like, you get to talk to you guys about the beer anytime I stop by and not just, yep. you know, have a bartender grabbing a beer I mean, you'll, you. you'll almost always find one of us behind the bar. Not, I mean, now that we have more space and more staff required to run it, yeah. it's, it's not all the time, but it's most of the time now. I mean, Greg's role in the company is taproom manager, along with a whole host of other duties, but that's his primary function. So he's there you know, 90% of the time. Okay. Okay. Um, and I would say that accounts for all the right, times that yeah. I've been there. Was, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So you might miss them like, you know, early in the shift one day here or there, but 
you know, usually I'm wandering around in the back somewhere or Brian pops his head in or Ryan's here or there. So yeah. you'll, you'll see us all out and about. We still all work tap room shifts. I think it's awesome. Greg is the tap room manager. Right. You're in charge of the brewing operations. That's or, right. Yep. And then what about Brian and Ryan? What is their, uh, how do they fit into the scheme of things? Uh, so Ryan right now is the guy who, you know, he, he manages our books and pays our taxes and does all the boring paperwork stuff. And of course, like I said, he works the tap room every once in a while. Brian has kind of been the jack of all trades for us for the last couple of years when we need somebody to, to pop in for a festival or do some sales stuff. Like he's, he does a fair amount of like wholesale account management. Okay. Um, and then when he comes on full time, him and Greg are going to jump back in the brewery to help me. Uh, cause we've, we've took delivery of some new tanks that are about a 50% capacity boost. And it's kind of past the point to where I can brew that much beer solo and clean kegs and fermenters and package and everything. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of crossed that line where I need a little bit of help back there. Yeah, that's um, a lot of work so, for one guy. Well, yeah, and on the three barrel brewery, like you know, we're hoping to do five to seven hundred barrels of beer this year, and that's a lot of turns on a three barrel. Even though we have larger fermenters, you still got to turn the brewery side yeah. of it. So it's mash ton scooping, you know, cleaning, CIP, all that stuff, and the kegs got to get clean too. So I still do all of that myself now. And Greg's used to help me in the old place, but when we moved, is had the focus on the front of the house. So he's missing the brewery. We'll get him pulled back in as well. Just a little math at, at trying to hit that kind of volume on a three barrel brewery. That's brewing at least every other day, and probably more than that. Right, isn't it? we're brewing about four times a week now. We can go up to six or seven. Okay, yeah. So if we go just back a little bit, back to when you were a home brewer. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about what kind of styles you, you like to brew back then and, and how that translated through into like what kind of beers you offered at Ill-Mannered. And maybe I'll just start with that yeah, question. There's, there's no connection at all. Um, <laughs> we, I, I used to like English styles. English brown ale was one of my favorite styles. Uh, we've never brewed that at Ill-Mannered at all. Um, you know, I, I won some home brewing medals with that one. And we've, you know, we've not brewed that style. Barley wines, it took me three years to brew a barley wine at Ill-Mannered. Um, so I liked the dark styles, the stouts and the porters. I eventually got more into IPAs and Belgians, uh, as I brewed more and more. The, our blonde ale recipe is basically one of my old homebrew recipes, but by and large, it's not the same thing. Uh, one of the beers I brought today, License to Ill, was a West Coast Amber that I made at home, but the rest, what, what it is now is, is nothing like it was before it was like more of an english like english yeast based amber ale and sure. now it's american americanized it's completely co-opted to american style amber so is that something you anticipated even when you were opening the brewery that you're going to have to brew different styles or is that something that once you started brewing beer and saw the customer's response you had to say oh so yeah, we uh, we knew we were going to have to try a lot of different styles, and that's kind of what we were into—the experimental part of brewing. And we still do it now, and we're constantly releasing new beers. At least once a month, we're probably dropping some sort of new style or new uh, beer sub style or something like that. Uh, so it's it's an ever evolving lineup. Well, fortunately for you, the way that craft beer is gone. That's sort of what the customer expects now, isn't it? Right. Yes. And I mean, they definitely expect you to be experimenting and being keeping up with trends and things that are changing and what's, you know, if we just made Northern English brown ale and stout, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know that we'd be very successful. You uh, would have to, to call say, it a, a 
brown IPA and right. a stout IPA and drop the first parts of both of those <laughs> right. uh, exactly. beer names. Yes, exactly. And it would ha- and add Imperial to the second. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd be good then. So we're still doing a lot of like the the niche styles. We do a ton of Belgian beers. Uh, I mean, mostly because I, I love brewing Belgian styles and there's a large enough base of customers that, that seek out that style that we can warrant you know, continual use of that yeast strain repeatedly as opposed to just buying it and making one Belgian being done. Um, We've been getting into a lot of, you know, hazy beers, New England styles, um, more into this imperial stout side of things. And, you know, just trying to keep up with what people are doing, experimenting with new ingredients all the time. Well, maybe we should have a little bit of beer, I think. Right. Uh, Man, I was just waiting for you to break the seal, Pat. It's, (laughs) you know, it's almost noon. It's... Three minutes. We're three. Good. Yeah, this is good. I think it's afternoon in Nova Scotia by now already. So yeah, I think we're good. Well, hey, what what are we cracking first? All right, we'll start with the West Coast Amber License to Ill, six point three percent. I don't want to call it multi because the hops really balance it out, but there's definitely roast and and, and caramel notes in there, uh, and then huge citrus flavors. I'll uh, crack All it right, up. Well, we'll get we'll get uh, get some glassware. We almost discontinued this beer. This goes back to your opening almost, doesn't uh, it? Did this, you have this, this very early on? beer like number... S- no, this was one of our opening beers. Yeah, it was. I, I think the first time that Mark and I went up there, this was on, I remember. Yeah. So you said you almost discontinued it. So tell us a little bit about that story. What saved it? Yeast strain change, I think, is what kind of brought out the character we were looking for. Okay. Uh, it, it was almost an English-style amber that was highly hopped uh, in the West Coast like tradition still coming off with the english like it was overly malty like the yeast strain yeah. we were doing was enhancing the malt more than the hops okay um so we switched to neutral american uh yeast with this one something like a the chico strain yeah, chico strain yeah. Based. and it kind of it it makes the hops pop a lot more it settles down the maltiness and you can still have the you know six three with a decent medium to medium full body without having that overly sweet character. Right. Um, I think the place where you notice it the most is in the finish. You're tasting more of the hops in your finish. You're getting more of that kind of citrus uh, note as opposed to kind of a malty sweet finish. Right. Uh, And so it wasn't, uh, I mean, it was a good beer. It just didn't hit the mark for our customers. Uh, and it was kind of on the lagging end of the, the sales. Sa- sales. Were, the sales were, were lagging. Them to be. Yeah. So we we brewed this for the opening of our new place with the new strain. Uh, and we're like, all right, well, let's just put it on because we had a lot more taps. And we'll see how it does with mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of new people coming in. We'll see where it goes. We got a ton of, hey, do you got any ambers? Do you got any ambers? Which is not a question we regularly <laughs> got. Yeah. There, you know? So uh, we sold through the batch like record time for this beer. Okay. Uh, and so... I was like, all right, is it a fluke? You know, so we make it again. It's selling really well. People like it. So I think we'll keep it around. I mean, it's not going to be a standby on tap or anything, but uh, I think we're going to keep making it. Yeah, I think this is a very drinkable beer. I mean, it's pretty clean ferment, you know, as far as like yeast contribution. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's very balanced. I wouldn't call it bitter, but it's got a really nice kind of bite in in the end that is lets you know you're drinking a beer. Cleans right. up um, for the next sip. I mean, yeah, it doesn't leave yeah. anything lingering. That's yeah, the, the malt- finish. That's the finish I right. was talking about. Like that, actually, that piece right there was important to the to the improvement of this beer. And so the key to yeah. that, you think, is the yeast? I do. Yeah, yeah I think the I think the other strain was. I mean, because we we didn't really change anything else. 
I mean, it's a beautiful beer too. I've got to say, it's it's the clarity is great, and it has this amber, almost burnished copper kind of note to it, and is poured with it with a, a lovely head. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's a handsome beer. Head retention's good. All you know, yeah, as we're getting down the glass, great, yeah, absolutely. What's the hop bill here? Uh, it's pretty traditional Chinook Cascade Centennial. Okay, yeah. All those good old guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, it's all nice. of the, the amber ale, the hops, this is kind of like, you know, circa 1998 or right. something was, like that. It was a throwback to the, like, the West, like the amber West Coast styles you got in California sure. in the mid-2000s or... Right. I'm thinking about beers like uh, the Red Seal Ale. Right. Um, that one comes to mind by now. Oh, I see it, yeah. yeah. Red, Red Rocket was another one. Oh, yeah. That was yep. uh, Bear Republic. Yeah, Bear Republic. Yeah. They're solid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So this license to ill is pretty good. And uh, I kind of wanted to hit on Beastie Boys right. while we got you in here. Yes. I know you guys are big fans. And how many beer names have you named uh, after Beastie Boys songs? <laughs> just, just the one. And, and well, it's not really a song. It's the album. Uh, this one's the album. And, and for hardcore Beastie Boy fans, you know we screwed it up, too, because the album's called Licensed to Ill with a D. Uh, yeah. But we call it license. License ill rolls off the tongue a little bit better, and uh, also kind of goes along with uh, Timothy Dalton's Bond license to kill. We we do have lots of beers named after songs. Uh, I mean, we got Fat Bottomed Girl. I'm a huge Queen fan. Uh, we even had a be- uh, well, Who Run the World is a Beyonce song. You know, but music's a big inspiration for pretty much everybody, right? So yeah. Just shift gears a little bit. We've touched on yeast. Maybe tell me a little bit about like, how many different strains of yeast do you guys use? Have used is you know double digits, um, kind of all over the place. We we tend to stick with like five ones that we use pretty frequently. I mean, we have an English house and a, and a Chico, okay, American, which are the two big ones. I guess a Belgian strain of some kind. Uh, right, yes. Yeah. So we use a, we have a Belgian strain, that we, and so we'll run through all our Belgian beers on the strain, uh, and we typically take that out up to 10 generations. Okay. Um, most of the other stuff, we are down in like the four, three to four generations. With using a lot of the strains, it's hard to pull them out a ton of generations if you're not brewing the beers over and over and over again. Uh, so we basically will take one tank and dedicate it to Belgian beers while we had the strain. Yes, okay. Then you take a break for a little while, uh, and then you bring it back. Uh, but we always have uh, the Chico, and the we, we just use like a, a standard English ale yeast uh, for some of our dark beers. I mean, we have a Kolsch yeast we use, a okay. Hefeweiss and a Saison. We use Conan for all our hazy uh, stuff, uh, although we, we used Quike yeast in the latest hazy we made which is an interesting style we've been working on. Oh, yeah. You know, just in case people out there don't know, the kvikeyst is um, it's this Norwegian farmhouse yeast, right? right? It's a pretty amazing yeast. I mean, it's very unusual yeast. It's uh, incredibly resilient, um, high, highly alcohol tolerant, uh, temperature tolerant. Tell us about fast. The, the temperature fermentation on this last uh, right. hazy so the first it. time uh, or the this time when we used it we we pitched the yeast at 85 degrees um normally we would pitch it like 65 67 something yeah. like that um for lagers you're down in around 50 
and we let it free rise, meaning we turned all our cooling off, let it free rise, it got up to about 97 degrees. Uh, it was done fermenting in a little over 24 hours. And then the other really beneficial thing to this yeast is it drops like a rock. It's highly flocculent. How um, long did it take for it to drop, for the Krausen to clear and it to settle uh, out? Two days. I mean, three days. <laughs> crazy. I mean, you we, we had the yeast pitch sitting on our uh, table getting ready to go in. And, you know, you shake it up to get everything, you know, into a nice solution to put in the fermenter. Uh, from the from the lab so it was in this like plastic jug that was clear sitting there and five minutes later you could see it separating oh. from the the liquid in there yeah and you, that's not that's not normal yeah. for the strains we, we've used if you would let it sit for an hour it would all be settled to the bottom of the container immediately um, now there's nothing in there for it to eat uh, yeah so it, it really had nothing to do but it's still pretty impressive so what's the character the aromas and flavors you get out of the quite yeast right so this one's uh, like tropical citrus um it's meant to not meant to but it, it enhances sea hops very well okay. um like uh, we use citrus centennial amarillo which is not too far off from like centennial this this beer we got releasing uh next friday um i'm not sure when this is airing but uh you know. it's hard to say if it'll right. be out it might be so, but tell so us about if this it's, beer. if it's still on it'll be releasing on march 8th at our international women's day event um so it is uh it's a hazy ipa um so it's hopped with about four and a half or five pounds per barrel of hops uh kind of a like a lot of oats and uh wheat are in it so it's got the hazy appearance and uh, a little more body to it uh, low bitterness though and then the yeast is meant to enhance all those tropical characteristics the citrus characteristics of it uh, and it has done a nice job um, like we're going to package it tomorrow or a little bit later in the week i'm very excited to serve this beer and excited to use this yeast a little bit more what's the beer called who run the world oh uh, it's not paul's boutique after all that was my <laughs> prediction what is the uh, Belgian yeast strain that you use? Uh, it's, uh, well, it's equivalent to White Labs 530 for the homebrews. It's, uh, okay. I believe it's the West Mall strain. I, I think so, yeah. Uh, it's a great, great one. Um, 535 is also really good. Uh, we chose 530 because 535 doesn't flocculate at all. Uh, it stays in suspension forever, and it just extends our tank time by over a week unless we find find it yeah. really heavily and you get a lot of banana uh, a lot of stone fruit cherries raisins uh, I, and plums uh, which i really like especially in our belgian dark strong and the belgian double and we get a lot of people converted to belgian beers in our place with uh, ill monk which is our belgian double uh you know a lot of people are like oh you know can i have an amber and it's like well the only amber we have on is belgian but you don't tell them that you just say well here try this oh i love it what is it it's a belgian double I didn't. I don't like Belgians. Yes, you do. Yeah, I think we've. You know, we've talked about this a little bit lately, Pat. I mean, maybe not on on a recording, but yeah, trying to find like who likes Belgian beers in Columbus, Ohio. Like, it's hard. Well, I'll raise my hand. Right? I know, me too. But it, it, you know, as far as like driving any sales and getting getting people attached to them, you know, we've got right. we got Rock Mill that does all Belgians and. And they do a great job, and and I've had some at, at you guys' shop, and yep. then also, uh, you know, Stas, the, yeah. the real small spot up there. Yeah, uh, Frank at Restoration does a few as well. Uh, yeah, how marketable they are, and and then you know how many people are interested in this in in an age where everybody's IPA. Yeah, I mean, I have a theory. 
my wife is an example where Belgian beers are sort of her favorite. So she doesn't like beers if they get too hoppy, which I think actually means too bitter. Yeah. She, she yeah. doesn't like the, the beers if they get too roasty and dark. Um, and she finds lagers a little bit boring. And so, you know, but Belgians, sh she goes for that. So I, I think there is a market, but I think some of the things that make it hard is if you really want to do like Belgian beers like they do in Belgium, you've got long maturation times, you've got bottle conditioning, you've got high carbonation. Those are not easy things for most breweries to do. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know how you guys feel about that. I mean, yes, you're right. Like, and we don't do any of that. <laughs> we, don't do, uh, we don't carbonate high. We don't bottle condition. It's all it's all forced carbonated, uh, and then packaged in kegs. Practically, um, only Rock Mill, uh, right? Of the Ohio breweries I can think of does it that way, and and it's not an easy model. It is. Mm -hmm. It is not easy. It's challenging, you know, because you're always you're always trying to keep up with demand, and and we're limited capacity, so you can't sit on beers forever. Fat bottom girl, we do let mature for a while before we tap it the dark strong and the double go through a faux lagering phase at, at like 50 degrees for a little over a week uh okay and then in addition to that uh, the dark strong will sit for a little while to mellow out uh whereas the double goes right on it's seven and seven point seven percent the key to approachability with Belgian beers in general is to do just that, to make them approachable, like start with the wit beer. You know, mm -hmm. we do two Le Wit to Quit, another song name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, Hammer. You, you know, we, we make it light and drinkable. Yeah. We keep the phenolics of the Belgian yeast in control by fermenting at a lower temperature. And then so it just presents to people as just a wheat beer. With a little bit of a fruity note, right? Yeah, Citri that, mostly citrus. That that's a heavy one when you say phenolics. I mean that that can be a pretty polarizing attribute. Like if it's too, right? You know, peppery and and in your face, <laughs> like full frontal astringent. Agree. Yeah, and 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 we get a little peppery in our saison, but we avoid. We stick to the stone fruit, to the citrus, to the bubble gum, you know, yeah, kind yeah. of stuff in yeah. the in the Belgian beers. Uh, you know, and I think when you describe a Belgian beer, you just describe it as like medium, full-bodied, fruity, drinkable. What else does that sound like? It sounds like New England IPAs, right? Low bitterness. Yeah. 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 So a lot of people who are getting into beer who are big fans of New England IPAs for all of those reasons, fruity, drinkable, low bitterness, right? A lot of those, not all, but a lot of those attributes are, are also applicable to Belgian beers. Yeah. Which is why we've had a lot of luck just getting people to try them and find out that they like this style that seems unapproachable. Yeah, well described, Tom. And for you kids out there drinking those IPAs, lesson well learned. There's some very interesting older styles of beers that are from cultures that are well worth exploring. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you guys touched on the key there is probably not letting the phenolics get too assertive. Right. That's like a, a bitterness flavor or a roasty flavor that, you know, the first time you're you're exposed to it you might not like it it takes it's a bit of an acquired taste and even then it can Ooh. go over the top right absolutely yeah it's all about control restraint balance what what kind of temperature profile do you use when you're fermenting these belgians and maybe they're not all the same the, but. yeah it varies um so the the more traditional ones so we have a double a triple and, a, and a, the belgian dark strong we tend to start at 67 and free rise up to typically around 74 degrees after two days. So we keep it in check for a couple of days, and then we let it free rise at the end. And that keeps the phenolics in check for us. 
uh, whereas the wit beer will stay down at like 65 the whole time. Okay. 65 right. to 67. Uh, but we got a Belgian rye pale ale. There's already a lot of spiciness from the rye. So again, we keep it in check. We keep it at 67 the whole time. You know, we do a Belgian stout that we're trying to get the fruitiness of the yeast out. So we also let that one free rise. As a home brewer, I kind of tend to use the same sort of thing, pitch mm-hmm. it around 68 and see where it goes. Yeah. Um, I brewed something with the White Labs 500, which is the Chimay yeast. I'll tell you, we were talking about Fike, but that that sucker, the Krausen had dropped and it was at final gravity after 48 hours. Wow. Which was like, whoa, I did not expect that. So those Belgian yeasts can go to town pretty they, quickly. They too. rip. I mean, yeah. ours is, you know, you'll see active fermentation like pretty much before you are done cleaning up for the day and then you know the next day you come in and there's a mess on the floor from all the blow off and i mean those beers rip and they're done fast hey now we're gonna have a big beer but we're well into the afternoon now. We're well into the yeah. afternoon. It's 29 so, yeah. whole minutes. <laughs> 29 minutes. So uh, this is, hmm, what is this? This, this is, is a barrel age subterfuge. Yes, this is um, this is from 2017 we brewed this beer. Uh, wow. And so it's got some age on it. It's 9.6%. It's an imperial stout uh, called subterfuge. We had it in a Middle West Spirits rye whiskey barrel for about a year. Oh, that's cool. Then it's been in a keg for basically the last year. Yeah. Uh, we have a small collection of beers that we just hold back. Has um, it rounded out in the keg over the last year, you would say? It has and, definitely and mellowed. I mean, of course, the hops are going to sit down more and more mm-hmm, over time. Mm-hmm. And it has kind of time to, I don't know, for lack of a better word, meld together. Yeah. Um, you know, you get some of that oxidation from being in the barrel. Uh, and that comes through a little bit in, a, I think, a positive way in this beer. Yeah, I would say so. These these larger beers can handle that. Yeah, Um, it gives it a fruit. It can give it kind of a fruity, sherry note. Yeah, 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 it does. And and this is uh this is pretty drinkable too. It's a nice and dry for you know. Mm -hmm. I like that it's dried out because at that weight with too much flavor, sometimes you don't want that all sticking to the tongue. Right. It's a delicious beer. So this is our anniversary beer. We make this in June every year for release in August. our, Our anniversary. Uh, and then we bring out random kegs of it for special occasions. We brought this out for the groundbreaking anniversary yesterday. That's right. We've made two anniversaries. And Are you going to have an anniversary for the opening of the tap room as well? Well, as- it opened a week before our actual anniversary. Oh, okay. Hence the reason we have a groundbreaking anniversary because we were trying to find a way to make that work. It's like Christmas uh, in July. Right. It's not bad. Anytime you can have a party, why not? Why not? I love a party. Exactly. So we always are looking for reasons to bring out open up the cellar, bring out interesting beers. Not only did we do this, yesterday we did a, a Shiraz wine barrel aged tart cherry Belerner Weiss, and we also released the the unbarrel aged version of the 2018 Russian Imperial Stout, and then a new American Pilsner we made as well uh, that was a brand new beer. Man, that was delicious too. What Thank a you. great beer. Like I could have drank that the rest of the afternoon if we didn't have other places to go yeah. and driving to do. It was excellent. 
a fantastic pilsner. Now, what makes something an American pilsner? So, I mean, we added a little extra hot burst. It was 34 IBUs. Um, so it was a little more bitterness. And then we late hopped it, uh, like Whirlpool hopped it. So there was some you know, like citrus aromatics to it. And then, so it's a, it's a nice, smooth, drinkable pilsner lager like you would expect with a little bit of hop character, but not overwhelming. Because right. we knew as soon as people saw lager up on the board, they had certain expectations, but we didn't want to go over the top. Now, where'd your malt come from on that Pilsner? Uh, it's German Pils malt. Okay. Yeah. You know, I think people who haven't been to Germany might kind of think, they don't think that Pilsner is a very hoppy style, but you can get pretty hoppy Pilsners. Yeah, absolutely. And right, well, and Czech, Czech Pils is even hoppier. Absolutely. Yep. To most people, when you think hops, you know, people are thinking about your, you know, your West Coast hops or even maybe your, your Australian hops, but I really love... A hoppy beer that encapsulates all those sort of noble hops. Right. I mean, there's yeah. a spiciness to it, and there's this kind of floral note. And I find myself often craving that and having a hard time finding it in the market. Yeah, definitely. And we have, I mean, our next lager coming out, uh, Cup Check. It's our Hellas-style lager. Uh, and we'll tap that on opening day of the baseball season. And it's got Hallatower in it, which is exactly Beautiful what hop. you're looking for. Yeah. Um, you see a lot of beers with saws in them. Uh, although not as much as you used to, but uh, that's an excellent hop. That's more the spicy side that Absolutely. you're talking about. Uh, yeah, that's the one to use, really, right. I mean, for yes. Pilsners. Well, definitely a Czech Pils, that's yeah. what you want. For real, yeah. yeah. Yeah, those are great hops, underrated in my opinion. I mean, it used to be everybody thought those were the greatest hops, and then now that... Right. I don't know if you would say they're forgotten, but a little bit, yeah. Yeah, it, it, so it I is, think, you know, you just got to keep pushing them in sure. there. I mean, don't let right. people forget. Right. right. Absolutely. Well, it's been a little. It's been a little challenging to get size. Like uh, there has right? been a bit of a shortage the last year or so. Uh, I mean, you can get it, but something happened over there. Yeah, yeah. they had it. They had a bad crop. Yeah. Here. Yeah. So okay. you yeah, know, and that happens. Rough conditions. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Actually, I think bad crop conditions in Germany are ultimately what led to Cascade kind of penetrating into like staying alive. Really. Yeah. Do you guys know this story? Why don't you tell us a story, Pat? Well, Here's a little story we got to tell. <laughs> well, so Cascade Hops were developed at Oregon State University at the USDA Hop uh, Center out there. And nobody really cared that much for them, although they had a little bit of promise. But then there was, uh, there was hop light in Germany. So Coors started using Cascade back in the 1970s. And that really kind of boosted production capacity enough that probably kept it alive. Then Coors, after a while, said, no, that's just too hoppy. We don't like that. And they, they dropped it. Then later on, places like Anchor and Sierra Nevada came on and started using it. But that's sort, sort of the story of how we got Cascade hops. Definitely. And great hop, too. We still use it. I know a lot of craft brewers maybe don't use it as much. Uh, but there's a lot of floral citrus character in that that with the right coaxing, you can still get and and we use it in some of our IPAs. Yeah, you can still get the modern flavors out of out of some of these older hops. Yeah, it's an overlooked but still very I think very relevant. But just everybody's moving on to new sure. things, right. so it it seems like it's older, but I think you know it's still good. I think it pairs really well with some of the sort of newer, juicier kind of hops, and so. That pairing of the old school C hops with right. the newer juicier hops is a powerful thing. For sure. And there's still a lot. Of, I mean, Centennial and Cascade paired together, you can pull out a lot of like, yeah. a lot of citrus flavor, which is, yeah. you know, that's what you want in some of your juice bombs. So Now, at the anniversary party yesterday, you had a beer you don't see every day, which is an Australian sparkling ale. That's right. Sparkadile Dundee. That's right. Which was tasty, too. Thank Very you. Good. That was a good beer. 
And that also had kind of a creative use of hops, uh, right? Because it was using down under hops, wasn't it? Right. So we used, uh, so traditional to that beer specifically, that style is crystal hops. So we use that. Okay. And then we use galaxy. Uh, so we, we did take down under hops, but the fancy ones, uh, galaxy and comet and Vic secret. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and we put those in and those are, you know, typically stuff you would see in a lot of your, uh, modern IPAs. So it lends a lot of that really fruity tropical note. The yeast, we used a specific Australian ale strain. Oh, that's cool. And you get, you get a lot of, it's, it left a very malt forward kind of how we were talking about the license ale before where the yeast enhance the malt characteristic this yeast really did that uh so it was a collaboration with street side brewery in cincinnati and so good guys yeah good guys, guys. Yeah. garrett's awesome he's we, a great we've guy. done a collaboration with them as well and uh great experience and uh actually he was dropping by the brewery uh right. after visiting your That's place right. and yeah. i had sent to him now yeah, man i gotta get up there for the tapping right and, yeah, we've done two with them. We did a Saison in their place, and then we okay. finished, up, finished off the second half of the collab at our place with the Australian Sparkling Ale. He brought honey from his local, the farm that he gives his grain to. Okay, had, that's cool. Honey, uh, So he brought honey up, and then we added to this beer to kind of dry it out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so really interesting beer. Uh, it's almost hard to describe. You got you have to taste it to really get what an Australian yeah, yeah, ale is all about. It was you know it was really dry and yep. but it very like you just kept going back to it. You right. know some of those drying beers, you know they're dry and it makes you right. more thirsty. You're like, man, I just want to keep drinking this. Or, but it was it's a it's a crusher. It's it's got the malt sweetness. It's got the fruitiness from yep. the hops, uh, citrus, the tropical flavors from the hops across the board. It's just a really unique, interesting beer. A fun one to brew. I always like to say we've never done a collab that I haven't learned something from the other brewer. That's the best part of the collaboration. So that's, you know, it's great to sit there and drink beers and brew and and talk about brewing and all that stuff. Uh, But you're always like, why do you do it that way? Right, right. Uh, And then you learn something. And we've instituted a lot of changes in our brewery from them. And we've had other brewers do the same thing from us. You know, just simple little things. Nothing's ever like, you know, you completely change your entire process. But... There's always little tweaks you can make to be make better beer. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's there's so many things about brewing, so many styles, so many yeasts, so many hops, so many. I mean, it just goes on that there's you always have somebody that's had a, a learned experience mm-hmm. from it that can say, yeah, actually, we're having great success with this, and you're like, wow, that's cool. Didn't think of it. Right. So, this Australian ale, it's it's kind of like the Kolsch or the steam beer or California Common, as we're only right. allowed to call it. It's kind of one of those styles. that's like it has some tradition to it. It has a bit of history to it, and it has a unique profile to it. But then, yet, it's kind of an an underwritten style as far as Americans would go. Definitely, and, Co- and Cooper, as you mentioned, was was definitely one of the more uh, prolific styles uh, when we were researching doing this one because you know we were we were struggling to find out like what are we going to do? Sure, you know we have the beers that we do regularly garrett has the stuff that he does regularly and we we're trying to find something unique and different came across this style and the research behind it was cooper's 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 and then like the style is kind of fading uh i don't know why though you know we sell a lot of blondale at our place and right, if, yeah. if we slap blondale on this australian sparkling i think we'd also have another winner so it could sell faster uh, right. you know it's kind of one of those things kudos to you for recognizing the style and also posting it because I I just think it's great. I think you should always learn something. Yeah. 
Well, this could be a resurgence of the style. We right. come back in a few years and everybody in Central Ohio will be making Australian sparkling ales, maybe. Well, <laughs> and that's the fun thing about collaborations, too. Like, we can make an Australian sparkling ale. And if it's a winner, we can keep making it. Sure. Or, you know. Or not. Yeah. Or not, yeah. you know. I mean, if you don't, like, collab, the expectation is you're making it once and you're not going to make it again. I will say, yeah. I... In 2007, I taught at the University of Sydney for about six weeks. I was a visiting professor down there. And uh, actually, I drank almost exclusively Coopers while I was down there. It's good. I, I think of it kind of like the English bitter translated to a warm climate. So it's got a balance between the malt and the hops. But of course, you know, cellar temperature beer in a place that's 90 degrees Fahrenheit right. outside is kind of has a limited appeal. So I think they took it. They added some effervescence. They made it crisper, mm-hmm. a little bit more drinkable for that hot weather. So, so keep you should bring that one Definitely. back in July, yeah. August. I think. Yeah, for sure. Let's drink it all summer. Right, I'm in. Boy, I tell you, I am really enjoying this barrel aged subterfuge. Uh, it's got kind of spice, a little spice from the rye. I don't know if that's yeah. is the rye in the malt bill or just the rye whiskey. It's or the both? rye. It's just the rye whiskey in, okay. the, in the barrel, and a little they bit were of fresh an, dump barrels when the beer went in. Okay. What about sourcing barrels? How easy or challenging is that? It can be easy or challenging, right? We, so we deal with, we <laughs> Gotta deal have with, friends, work I guess. with, we work with both Middle West and uh, Watershed. Uh, we have barrels from both of them. Of course, you can use brokers and buy barrels from all the major distilleries in Kentucky or Scotland or pretty much wherever you want. If you're willing to pay for it, you can get pretty much whatever you want. What kind of barrels are the most expensive? Because some know. things are all more the, rare than all others. All the specialty stuff, yeah, sure. specialty stuff is expensive. Double use maple, bourbon, whatever <laughs> barrel is <laughs> yeah, always yeah, like sure. you know four hundred bucks or something like that. So yeah, I mean we like dealing with the local guys. You sure. know, it's great to go pick up barrels and just bring them back to your place, right? Yeah, watershed uh, and also Middle West, great folks. And why go further? Yeah, at Land Grant is that? Your uh, we've used yes, quite okay. a bit of both, quite a bit of both, and. Uh, yeah, they're right here. The beer that comes out tastes good. That's what matters. Yeah. Um, you can buy a barrel for the same price, but you still got to ship it, right? Like, yeah. you know, shipping barrels is... That's costly. That's a right. lot more expensive than driving a pickup truck or a, exactly. or a uh, Sprinter or van over to Snagit. Specifically Brian's pickup truck, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's costly. You know, you're shipping wood across the country for no reason when you have when you have yeah. oak here. So. Got them right here. Um, We've got good spirits right. here in town. There no complaints from me. Speaking of local ingredients, I know you've done a lot of things with Rustic Brew Farms, both mm-hmm. on the malt side and on the hop side. Actually, I, I think I saw on your board there's a beer coming out pretty soon, right. which is a pale ale made with uh, their ingredients. Do you want to talk a little bit about sure. your collaborations with uh, with Matt over at Absolutely. Rustic Brew Farms? Absolutely. Um, so Matt's been a great friend of ours since pretty much when we started. I mean, he reached out to us trying to get us involved in the grain world before we even opened. He's a great guy. His farm is like 10 miles from us or something like that. Yeah. Um, he approached us about using his grain when he was first getting off the ground. And about two years ago, we made uh, an all Ohio pale ale from his grain and his hops. Yeah, I remember this. At our anniversary party. Yeah, um, I had that too. And I went to his farm. I picked the hops myself. And while I got the brew started, uh, Greg kept it going while I went up, drove up to the farm and picked the hops. Then I came back and with the hops 
and we put them in the beer. Like literally they were hanging up and <laughs> an hour and a half later they were in our beer. That's awesome. Uh, and then it was his grain, his hops. And that's where Rustic Ohio Pale Ale started from. Now to keep up, we make make it with his grain and then we use Nas hops out of Bucyrus. Okay. I haven't heard of them yet. Yeah. So they started around the time we made the first beer. Okay. Uh, so the first time we made it, we used their first year hops. Now we're using their second year hops. They're able to pelletize, so we're able to source their hops and, and hold them over time so we're not waiting for wet hop season. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, so so the first time we made Rustic Ohio Pale Ale was wet hop season. Yeah. Now we can make it anytime, which you, you were correct. It's coming out probably next week or the week after that. Okay. It's brewed just waiting for a spot on the board. So And so it's just it's Matt's Grain from Rustic Brew Farm in Marysville. It's uh, Chinook, Centennial, and Cascade from Bucyrus uh, at Nos Hops. It's all really fresh, really crisp, really drinkable. It's a pretty typical, approachable pale ale. It's made from dirt in Ohio. Yeah, that's awesome. Matt, if you're out there listening, I'll make what a listen. good guy Matt is. He's the best. Absolutely. So, fellow Judas Priest fan, and I think uh, <laughs> Pat and I probably want to talk to you pretty soon. So I'd like to get you on the podcast, brother. Absolutely. You know, on the topic of hops... A couple of weeks back, I was talking to Sean White from Littlefish, and he was really singing the praises of Ohio-grown Chinook. Okay, yeah. And he, he said, I think that Chinook grown in Ohio was better than Chinook from the Pacific Northwest. Wow, that's a bold statement. That that's is. awesome. That yeah. Is, yeah. The, the Chinook we got from Nas this year was pretty intense. Like, I was highly impressed. Uh, you know, the first time we used it was first year hops, and they were, it was sure. it was good. It takes a while for those uh, vines to get established. But man, this stuff he brought, I put my nose in that, and I was like blown away. Okay, uh, and it is super piney, dank. Like the Chinook is intense, and we use a lot of Chinook at Ill Mannered. Uh, it's one of our primary bittering hops because uh, it's a very versatile hop. You can use it to bitter, then you can use it for a lot of flavor and aroma as well. That's good news for higher breweries, I think. I hope so. Yeah. yeah and definitely. you guys especially. Why did you guys locate in Powell? Uh, well, so we were looking for a spot that was underserved, I guess, for lack of a better word. There was a community that was clearly interested in craft beer, but didn't have their own brewery. And so we're kind of looking to plant our flag somewhere. We set some specific parameters around where we wanted to be, uh, mostly out of convenience for us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I didn't want to drive an hour to work every day. So, so Powell was particularly appealing because they had a great establishment of restaurants that, that served craft beer. You look at the local roots and the craft house, the Prohibition, Liberty Tavern, those kind of places. All good spots. Yeah, right. And they all have pretty decent craft beer selections. Around the time we were looking, Daily Growler opened up in Powell as well. And they were had a nice, successful opening. You started looking at it, and you're like, well, here's a place that needs a brewery, community that needs one. Like, they, they can get everybody else's beer, but they yeah. can't get anything. You know, it's a very local-oriented community. Everybody wants to support their local businesses. We found a small spot. Friends of Brooklyn Pizza had just moved across the street, so we moved into an old pizza shop. Yeah, and by and, small, you mean small, oh, because small. in comparison well, to the new place, like... Uh, right, your basement's currently bigger than our, uh, <laughs> <laughs> our subterranean studio. Is right, right. 
I see that. I mean, yeah. I think it's awesome. For us, it's kind of like we got to do some planning right. because uh, there is some driving involved, even though it's only probably 15 minutes from here. It's not bad, yeah. When you cross the outer belt, you think, should I be in an airplane? I don't know. <laughs> Get your but really, you stand. shouldn't be. You only got yeah. five more minutes from the outer belt. And man, I, I don't know. We've been going up there a long time. You know this. Yep. I, I don't know. I think you guys make great beer. And well, the community seems that. to have uh, really supported you. Definitely. There. I mean, when you look at what we what we went from, I mean, I love small strip mall breweries. If I go to another city, I try to find them because, hell, half the time that's some of the best beer being made. Yeah. Uh, and at least it's highly experimental and you can always try different stuff. You think about where we came from to where we are, not that we're like global dominating beer company or anything, but our community supported us enough to allow us to do what we're doing now which is, you know, quadruple in size. And a lot of our focus in moving was let's give the customers what they've been wanting. And we have been unable to provide in a thousand square foot place because we had 800 of that thousand dedicated to brewing and 200 dedicated (laughs) to drinking. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I think, man, then the tap room is great. It was awesome to see it so full. I think every time we've been up there, it's been a a pretty good full room. And man, you guys are always so accommodating and kind too. Uh, we we just love having people, you know, we love seeing you know, your faces and we have a, a huge regular following. We know a lot of people on their first name basis, which is great. Like there's a lot in knowing that you're going to open the doors and people you know are going to show up. You know, we have a group that comes in all the time of regulars. Everyone, we got the Wednesday crowd, you know, and these guys didn't know any each other before. Yeah. Us, yeah. And now they all, they're all friends. They do stuff outside of coming to our place and drinking. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, they were brought together by the existence of us making beer. And that's just a really cool feeling. Uh, so we have a little table at the brewery and, and you guys might be familiar with the term Stammtisch. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a German regulars table. Uh, so we have a Stammtisch at the brewery. Now we don't enforce it. Uh, in Germany, they do enforce it. You're, yeah, not, allowed, yeah. you're not allowed to sit at the Stammtisch <laughs> unless you're invited. Uh, so we put that up for them and they all crowd around that and hang out and drink some beers and it's a good time. Hey man, people, you know, that's a community thing. People getting together to have beers. You've got to be proud. I mean, when you're bringing people together and like you said, you've created a subset of new friends. It, it's good to have that beverage to gather around that, you know, you've put your hard work into and, right. uh, gets people out makes you feel good yeah it really i think adds something extra when you go in and you're talking to the person who made the beer so i mean sierra nevada can't do that right great lakes fathead they can make superlative beer but you can't have the same relationship with the brewer that you're like oh this is what i was thinking when i made this beer what do you think of it you have this direct rapport yeah well and that's been been a core importance to us since we opened is you know, I mean, when we were in the old place, it was like the only four people ever behind the bar were the four people that right. owned the place. Right. It's physically impossible for us to make that happen now. But, you know, you got to trade off a little bit more space means we have to have a little more help. But we still go through great lengths to have four owners behind the bar a lot. I mean, I bartend fairly frequently and I like doing it because what's better than getting that instant feedback? Like, hey, man, your beer's garbage, right? Like, okay, well, thanks. Appreciate the feedback. <laughs> I doubt you get too many of those. Tom. Hey, oh, it happens. <laughs> but we really enjoy the direct, direct customer interaction. Like, that's why having a tap room is important. Uh, yeah, it's so know, personal. It's just so personal. Right. It's our, mod- our model is to have a tap r- is to be tap room focused. I think you see a lot of the industry going that direction yeah. now in the smaller side. It allows you to start small and still have a 
have a successful business when you focus on the tap room. You've seen it to the point to where the Brewers Association has created a new class of voting members that is called a tap room brewery. Oh, I didn't um, know that. And you're seeing a lot of that now mm-hmm. because that's the new model. In, it's in the terms best. Of, the tap room's the best. You know, almost four years later, have a three barrel brewery, and there are no plans to upgrade that thing anytime soon. Yeah. And if so, you're familiar with the brand and like you're at a restaurant and you're having a meal, and of course you right. want a beer with it, and you're like, oh, cool. They've got El Mannered on here. Right. I didn't even know they put it, you know, put any in distribution, but. As as great as that is to drink it off site, the best is always on site, having that beer where you know it's fresh and where you have the experience that goes with it. Well, and I think that's the key is the freshness and yeah. the the experience of seeing the brewery. Like that's what I like about Land Grant is like you're in the tap room, you look through the window, brewery's right there. You can see it. And that's always been for us, like before in the old space, you you were practically sitting in the brewery. Now you could have mashed in, right? You could actually have. while <laughs> having your beer. That's you right. could have. Uh, now it's a little more separated, but you can still walk in the back and see it. Uh, yeah. We got some tables set up back in the brewery yeah. that you can hang out at. Uh, you know, so that's it's still important to have that immersive experience. I agree, and I think that's cool. Like I think the last couple times I've been there, when. Most of the time, it's a party that gets somebody to say, oh, right. they're doing this. So you see that come across your Insta or Facebook feed, whatever you subscribe to. And you're kind of like, oh, right. I didn't know that was going on. Now. You know, it puts puts the thought in your mind for me. Yep. But no, I think it's cool because it does make, I think, somebody that uh, enjoys craft beer, that enjoys the process of brewing, maybe as a home brewer, yep. to go, oh, that's cool, man. I can like look around in the brewery and see what you know equipment they have and it does make you feel a part of it for sure. Right. And we do tours all the time. Like, I mean, if I'm working the tap room and it's not insanely busy, you know, I will gladly take anybody back there, uh, you know, sample a couple of beers off the tank, yeah. talk about the process. That's important. And I know Greg will do the same thing anytime. Like these are the things that make those connections to your community and to your customers that are important. You're not just coming in and here's your beer, get out of my way, Right come in enjoy this beer let's talk about it let's enjoy the the whole community aspect in the process of making it serving pints to the people is where it's at for us i think if we continued to grow you would probably see a second tap room before you saw like full-scale production brewery from us in terms of like we would probably open another ill-mannered somewhere else in town yeah Um, so i think that that's probably our next step i was going to ask about the columbus ale trail I would guess that that might drive some traffic your way. It does, and I think it's a big help uh, in getting people to come to a suburban brewery. And we're big fans of the Ale Trail. We have already signed up for the next version of it, and we can't wait. I mean, we've been in it, I think, three years now. Uh, We missed the very first year because we opened a couple months after it started. Uh, But we've been in it the rest, and it's, what, up to 50 breweries? I mean, it's a, it's a lot. It's Get getting those stamps yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah, right. And it's we getting st- pretty challenging to we finish We stamp a lot of books. Yeah. Stamp a lot of books, a lot of cool yeah. prizes associated with it. From a customer perspective, the encouraging people to try new breweries, uh, much like we encourage people to try new beers when they come into our place, uh, I think it's beneficial for everybody involved. What about social media? How important is that toward getting people into the tap room? I mean, it's pretty much the only way we advertise um, right it worked for pat and i yesterday right exactly right. exactly yeah. i specifically spent i spent 25 cents telling them to send pat uh, make, make sure that gets to pat and mark right. they'll be up <laughs> yes. right after the crew game right 
So I think you already spoke a little bit to like where you think you might aspire to go to you know, down the road. If anything, if you were going to get bigger, it would be by opening another tap room rather than trying to push into production brewing. Yeah, I just uh, I think that in in today's beer world, if you're not if you don't already have a large brewery and a distribution mm-hmm. footprint, uh, that it's getting harder and harder to get share of mine from the customers, let alone your distributors. Yeah. For us, it makes more sense to continue to focus on the pint-to-person model. I'm going to serve you a pint of beer and create those one-to-one relationships. You know, and there's a lot of great beer out there. I mean, you can buy cans of delicious beer pretty much everywhere now. Uh, You know, handles are harder to come by in in restaurants and in bars. And for us, that's just, I mean, obviously the margins are higher because you're not selling to a middleman. But it's more important for us to make those relationships and serve fresh small batch beer. Like everything right now is made three barrels at a time. So you know you're getting pretty fresh beer. Well, it also makes you very nimble, doesn't it? If you want to go a different direction with the style or something... I mean, even at the size of land grant, you, how far out is your production schedule? Yeah, uh, probably about, I would say, four to six months. I mean, we got a plan. I would say production schedule locked in probably two months. I okay, mean, okay. We try to stay pretty agile if we want to move. You know, if something takes off, we want to move in that direction as far as uh, one-off seasonals that, that maybe we think, man, everybody sucked that up. Why don't yep. we make another batch? So, you know, we try to stay pretty agile, but really, you know, there's an overall plan. The tap room is where it's at. I mean, 100%, it's the best connection you got with your customer. And if that translates into out-of-the-tap-room sales because you're like, man, I can take Bonus. this home and have another one after right. I don't have to drive, you know, right. not a bad thing. Well, and we, I mean, we set our production schedule loosely about a month out. We, f- we firm it up about two weeks out. It takes us about a week to get yeast if we have a specific okay. yeast strain. So Greg does an excellent job of managing our raw materials inventory. Sometimes I'll text him three days in advance and I was like, Hey, I wanna make I wanna make Zach Morris instead of Power Indicus or like can can I do this? Most of the time the answer is yes and sometimes no. So like we're pretty agile in that standpoint. Or if it, if I get a burr up my ass about making, you know, uh, a hazy IPA, I wanna make one, it takes me seven days to get that yeast. But most of the time, we we look at about a month out and say, here's what we're planning yeah. to do. We have an idea of what styles go on in every tank all the time. It might change as to which specific beer I want to put it. Like, you know, we make eight or ten different IPAs. So I may change the IPA that's going in based on what's sold in the tap room. Sure, sure. And so that's the nice thing about the agility you, you mentioned is we can look at what's selling and adapt pretty quickly to it. That's awesome. Man. Tom, great having you on. Thanks a lot. Thanks for bringing the beers. I I don't know if I've got a good afternoon or a nap ahead of me, but either way, it's going to be the best Sunday afternoon ever. Aren't those the same thing? All of those are <laughs> it true. It is for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's been great. Well, thanks for coming on, Tom. And, thanks for having uh, me. I hope people, you know, head up to Old Manor, head up to Powell and check out some of these fantastic beers. It sounds... We're looking forward to a return, maybe, of the Australian sparkling ale at some point. You know, let's just return next week and have a couple more, Pat. (laughs) That makes it easy. (laughs) Sounds like a plan. Yeah, right on. Wait, cheers. All right, cheers. Cheers.